Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Wednesday afternoon, I had to record these a day earlier than usual just because family stuff and people are coming to visit, but seems to be enough questions, so let's jump in and see what we got. Starting us out for the first question of the new year, Dustin Madison wants to plan for their eventual trip to New York City and wants to know if I have any good spots for ethnic restaurants. And the interesting thing about that is I lived in Manhattan, and while there was amazing food there, it wasn't exactly known for its ethnic restaurants. Queens was. Mr. Morrow actually jumped in to remind everybody of that as well. So one of the things I never really found was an over-the-top amazing Indian food spot, and my friend Arturo grew up in Queens, kind of laughed at me like, dude, you come to Queens for that, you don't go to Manhattan for that. So I don't know, I've found some pretty awesome stuff. And I do like all types of food. I mean, obviously, I'm a fatty, but I really genuinely do like all types of food. So if you talk about, you know, what, what we as Americans generally call Chinese food, I like that. But I also really love the actual real food that comes from all different places of Asia, which I've been lucky enough to visit through an old job that I had. So the only suggestion that I would really have, because once again, I've been out of there for a bunch of years now and so much has changed since I left the one thing I would mention is that look for the very specific type of food that you're you're trying to get so for example when I, I spent a long time in Taiwan specifically in Taipei City and I loved the street food and I loved the way they cooked their pork like thinly stripped or thinly cut strips of pork with that was like crispy on the outside and oh, it was so good so when I wanted to look for that I didn't search for anything generic, I searched for traditional Taiwanese food and tra Taiwanese street food. And uh, one place actually popped up right down the street from where I lived. So, and it was great. So that's the only, you know, I, I could only give a general suggestion and kind of look for exactly what you were looking for. And if you were going for the opposite, like, hey, what's some good food that I can't get? You know, Dustin mentioned they lived in Southern Indiana. What can I not get in Southern Indiana that I could get there? You might want to look at just some food specific channels and people who really specialize in that. Uh, I'm just an expert fatty and somebody who, who loves and appreciates food uh, for all the reasons. So I, I could give that advice. But uh, yeah, that was kind of a fun one to start the new year out. I always like talking about food and beer and stuff as well. So, uh, you know, let's see. Let's see what else we got for this week, too. Next up, Double H said they're thinking about getting into selling some hardware products they've designed for retro consoles. Do I have any thoughts on what works best from my perspective as someone who recommends products to get a commission? If I found a new retro product that was great and I wanted to promote it, how would I want to work with them? What should they have set up? So all excellent questions. Uh, I have to very selfishly answer from my perspective first, because this is, um, you kind of uh, touched upon something that is very, very important to me. My personal, incredibly strong opinion is if a product's good, that's all I really care about within reason, as long as it's not a clone, as long as, you know, the people aren't murderers and stuff like that. I mean, within reason, that's all I care about. And I will help anybody I can to promote their product as long as it's a good product. They've done their diligence. They're open to suggestions. Um, but some tips past that on what could help. First and foremost, don't waste anybody's time. That is my biggest complaint. Uh, and in fact, the only times I've ever gotten mean or snippy with people is when they've wasted hours of my time. There's actually a few people in particular that I, uh, I'm really thinking about right now, and I'm never going to say any names that's not this pointless in this, but there have been people that have sent me stuff and sent it under the guise of let's collaborate. You know, I'm going to send you it. You take your, you know, 10 years of running retro RGB or your 20 years of product development and, you know, let's do this together. 
So I did. I dug in the same way that I did for Mike Chi and for Voltar and for all my friends. And, you know, they became friends because of those collaborations and stuff like that. And I dug in really deep and I had a long list of suggestions for them. Um, and I was met with, it's fine. Wait a minute. What do, you, what do you mean it's fine? I mean, I said I like blue better than red. That's cool. That's your decision. But uh, what about this technical stat that is absolutely a fact and not an opinion? What about this measurable, verifiable thing that you got wrong? Meh, it's fine. That stuff absolutely drives me crazy. And what's worse is people like that generally are the type that can't accept that they're doing anything wrong. So I've learned to write them off immediately because I know this is really rude, but if I spend 20 hours researching a product for free for you, and with the only thing I ask in return, like, hey, let me give some feedback, I'll do a launch video, uh, you know, affiliate codes would be nice, I'll get back to that in a second, by the way, but affiliate codes would be nice, but just, you know, help me promote me while I'm promoting you, and maybe we could do this together. That's all I ask, and you just waste all of my time, and they always respond the same way, as if, uh, you know, well, you know, I'm not going to just drop everything because it's your opinion. No, no, no. There are opinions and there are facts and you need to listen to the facts. And the people that I get along with most, it maybe some of these people, I get the impression that they actually don't like me. I probably get on their nerves, but we work really well together because they'll accept opinions as opinions and they accept fact as fact. And I'm only human, right? So there's been a couple of times where I was like, hey, I think you messed this up. And they're like, I don't think I did. How did you test? And it turns out I had my scope set wrong. I used the wrong thing, whatever else. They didn't come at me like, no, I am the master of all designers. You are the one who is wrong. Like they were just like, well, wait a minute. Maybe I did make a mistake. Let's do this together. And I always obviously apologize and you know go, go from there. But we also do this privately. I don't, it's not like I jump on Twitter and I'm like, I found this prototype that will explode your consoles. Like, so that's as much as I'm ranting about this, it's the best possible advice I could give anybody who wants to work with anyone who's in my position. Do not waste their time. And it, the one, one of the people that just drove me the craziest, I, I just, I finally cut off after years of them wasting my time over and over and over. And I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. You've wasted so much of my time that I would have made thousands of dollars if I just took that same hours of time and went and swept floors. And you never even offered an affiliate code. So you've done literally done nothing but steal my time and money. And their response was, so you're mad that I never had an affiliate code? So that that's the type of people that you're, you know, that, that I have to deal with sometimes. No, it is not about that at all. The fact that you think it might be about that is another reflection of how hard it is to work with you. So that was a five minute rant, four minute rant about that. But that is the strongest advice I could possibly give you is do not waste anybody's time and accept the feedback that you've asked for with respect. And they might be wrong. They might be dead wrong. And maybe they're having a bad day and they're being a dick about it. I was having a bad day once and was sent a pretty mean email to somebody, but the my technical thing was right. I was like, hey, you know, this thing is absolutely horrible. I, I told you that this wasn't going to work, but you made me look at it anyway. And you never told me that a cloner was working with you on the It was the rudest I'd ever been in any professional email, but it was... I, if I wasn't having a bad day, I wouldn't have done that. But I also don't really feel bad because it was absolutely deserved. So 
you know, I, I'm trying to tell you all this, not so much to vent, although it does feel good to kind of get some of this stuff out, but I want to prevent that from happening to you. So find some people who you think, oh, actually, here's the last piece of advice. Find the most relevant person. So here's a good example. I have the utmost respect for the entire Commodore 64 community, all of the amazing stuff they do with the demo scene, the homebrews, all of the crazy hardware stuff. I've never owned one. I, I've never, I don't remember ever even using one for real, except maybe at a expo or something where I saw it for a moment. So I am not the person to come to. Not that I wouldn't love it or respect it, but I just, I don't have the expertise. You would want to go to Brendan. You would want to go, there, there's a bunch of people to Reese. Uh, a lot of people you could go to for a C64 product. Miss Mad Lemon, of course. Sorry, Maddie, totally forgot. Uh, but I mean, you have to pick and choose who you go to. And even if somebody is very enthusiastic about a product, maybe they're not the best person to go to. So some of that is your diligence as well. I'm not going to say names, but we all know that one person who makes very good opinion-based videos on YouTube about their thoughts on games, but then they also try to do hardware reviews, and they still, to this day, know nothing about hardware. So send them a game to review. Don't send them a piece of hardware to review. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a probably way more of something uh, of the details than you'd wanted, but it is the honest truth that's going to make anybody who has a new product work well. Um, also, j just the last piece of advice, anybody who's a public facing creator of any kind, I don't care if you're an Instagram person with 500 subs or a YouTuber with a million subs, you're going to get spam emails and scam emails all day long. So if you happen to know anyone who knows the person that you want to get a hold of, or I mean, if, uh, you know, it, I know this is going to sound really bad, please don't take this the wrong way. But generally speaking, if you have a ton of subscribers and you're getting tons of messages throughout all platforms, but somebody messages you on Patreon, you're going to take that more seriously because whoever's taking the time to subscribe to you is most likely somebody who you want to talk to. I have had a few cases where people signed up just to try to, to get me to, to some kind of pyramid scheme scam thing. It wasn't even retro related, but it was so very obvious that it was a scam that I just kind of laughed it off. So that's another way to get through to somebody like that. But if you know anybody who knows them, maybe you're in a live stream and you just want to try to start up a chat when it's relevant, of course. If I'm doing a live stream about a wireless mystery keyboard and you want to talk about SNES mods, wrong time, wrong place. But that's basically it. And, and that's really it. I mean, you know, don't waste anybody's time. Uh, have a good, solid product worked out. Take your feedback. And, I mean, unfortunately, the truth is not as many people would be as willing to promote pr uh, products with nothing for them, uh, nothing for them in it as a result. I do it all the time. I love it. It's why I started RetroRGB was to promote, well, why I started the podcast was to promote all of the creators and the products in the scene. And I, I never have taken money for a review ever, ever. Um, most of the time when people send me stuff to review, I send it back to them when I'm done. Uh, so, you know, try to think of some incentives and the typical affiliate uh, setup on your web stores. Almost every store will have a plugin for that as well. That certainly is something that's going to incentivize a creator to do that because it's going to, you know, everybody's going to get to a point where they're like, hey, there's a bunch of products, games, things I want to talk about. I only have time to do one. It, you know, if they're all about equal, 
almost everybody's going to choose the one with the affiliate link because you get the most time on your investment. So people get really pissed when I say stuff like that, even though I have a over 10 year history of not taking affiliate links for most of the things I promote. But I'm just going to be honest, if you're going to go to a larger creator, they're probably going to be a little more enthusiastic about dumping 20, 50, 100 hours, depending on how complicated the product is, uh, you know, of their time for free, you know, with something other than the hopes of a couple more YouTube subs and, you know, some very low revenue on a video. So hopefully I pointed you in the right direction. I really hope everybody doesn't uh, interpret this as me complaining, because really, 99% of the people that I have worked with have been amazing. I really appreciate everybody. I love helping. I love helping for absolutely free. Even if it's a video that gets two views and I lose you know, a bunch of time on it, that's fine. I love doing it. But the bad experiences really stand out because there's so few of them, but also because they were really shitty. So please let me know if you want me to elaborate anymore. I promise I won't ramble for another 10 minutes next time, but I just, it's a great couple of questions and I really wanted to get all of this out there for people to hear. Next up, K2 has a Japanese PlayStation 2 game called Ibarra that was originally a 240p arcade game made from Cave, but the PS2 version runs at 480i, and they were wondering how to get that back to 240p for use on a CRT. It has been five, four years since I've actually tried messing with this stuff, but going off of memory alone, so if I make a mistake, please let me know in the comments. I will read every comment, and I'll come back and follow up if I need to, but I'm pretty sure the GBS Control and RetroTank 5X could both do this, and I'm also pretty sure that because it was a game that was originally 240p that was then converted to 480i, it's even easier than a general 480i game. So, for each of them, you could just put it in downscaling mode, and then for the GBS control, that should just output RGB HV from the VGA port, so you would just need something like the HD15 to SCART to get it back to SCART. And, but of course, with the RetroTINK 5X, you would have to take the HDMI out and make it whatever you wanted, component video, VGA, then use the HD15 to SCART to get it to SCART. But that would, that should work. Now, I'm going to oversimplify this because, once again, it's it's been years since I've dug into the details, but I'm pretty sure, even specifically on the PlayStation 2, there are a bunch of games in this exact same scenario, original 240p, but also on 480i, so... I believe there's ways to force a 240p mode using GSM if you have just a soft modded memory card. You don't even need a modded PS2 for that. I remember talking to Fudo about this, but once again, years ago, and I meant to go try it someday, and I don't think I ever did. So that's definitely something that I would give all, any of those things a try, and I would start with whatever's free. So if you already have a soft-modded PS2 memory card, or if you wanted to get a MemCard Pro 2, which is still in the box, I gotta take a look at this thing soon. I'm excited for this one. You know, anything that you have already, I would give that a try. Uh, if you don't own a GBS Control or a RetroTINK 5X, I would get a GBS Control just because of price. No disrespect, I, I love the RetroTINK products, obviously, but for 30 bucks and, you know, a couple of moments that your time soldering something together, you might end up with something that's fine, but for the money, you're going to love it. So I would try all of that. 
and uh, I believe there was also a specific setting on the Tinks that for this. So if something was originally 240p, you could deinterlace in a way that when it scaled it to the 1080p, 4K, whatever, it actually sent it back down to 240p first. So you got a proper scale. That's obviously for a flat panel though, but I just wanted to mention that for anybody interested. Um, but if none of that works, actually, if you don't mind K2, just follow up and let me know what happened. Uh, if you don't have time to test it, that's cool. But if I'm missing something, if I'm forgetting a big piece of the puzzle, which is very likely, I'll go back and actually do some some real research on this and who knows maybe this would make a fun live stream so we could walk people through how to do this in the exact same scenario but let me know what you think and how you made out next up tony escobar just wanted to share a story and it's one that i've heard so many times so i definitely wanted to repeat it i'll paraphrase the first part just in interest of everybody's time but basically when they first started getting into gaming they did so via a wii plugged directly into a flat panel. And it was totally fine. It's a lot of people's gateway drug, if you will. And even though they eventually got the Tink 5X and some other devices, they kept using it plugged directly into their LCD, just probably out of convenience like most of us do. And then a few days ago or a few weeks ago, they started to play New Super Mario Brothers Wii and were dying all the time. So they finally thought, well, wait a minute, I just saw this content and been you know, talking to these people about why a scaler is important. So they unplugged the Wii from directly to their TV, plugged it into the Tink 5X, and Tony said it was revelatory. The clarity of the picture, the responsiveness of the game, and the fun they had playing on their LCD made them kick themselves for not having done this when they first bought the Tink 5X. So I love hearing stories like that because it proves that we're all not a bunch of idiots full of crap. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I made that Get a Scaler video, that was basically me taking everything that I've learned in 12 years or whatever I've been doing this and to trying to put it into a way that most people would understand exactly what Tony just very well articulated in this uh, because it's it's so easy to not and it's so easy to say it looks fine I don't feel any lag until you really sink into the game and that's when it really matters most because if you're a couple hours into a game and you just you can't beat the last few levels that's when you start to notice the latency and some of the other things about it so yeah thank you Tony for all the, the kind words and you know the support and you know all the fun for these questions but I really also thank you for sharing that story because it's one I hear so often and I just uh, I want to really try to push the point that when I made that get a scalar video, the very first thing I said is you could just get a CRT for free and not worry about this. I really wanted to prove to people this is not about money. This is certainly not about affiliate codes. There's no affiliate code on look for a broken or, or beat up CRT and try to see if it works. You know, uh, this really is just about trying to uh, get around the, the problem that the TV manufacturers have created for us and try to get a good gaming experience. So thanks for sharing, Tony. Next up, Eli has an HD CRT and is looking to connect modern consoles to it, but they need to know what devices have no or almost no latency in order to convert the signals properly. And it's an interesting discussion because we're not just talking about HDMI to analog, or e even if there is an HDMI input on the HDCRT, it's not about that. It's about these HDCRTs very often max out at 1080i. Some of them don't accept 720p at all. And some of them will only be low latency if you run them at 540p, which is basically 
the same as how 480i and 240p, 240 sounds like half, but it's actually progressive, so yada, yada, yada. Um, and to be honest, I don't know if there's one device that could do everything that you need. I think you're going to have to decide based on input resolution. Now, Eli specifically said that they were looking to convert 1080p switch, but I would actually consider coming from the other direction. Can you just plug your switch into, uh, into it and set it to 480p? Because if that was the case, you might be able to just plug it directly into your Sony HD CRT and run it in. Um, it, it would probably have about a frame or two of latency. Because it's a CRT, you're not going to get any motion blur, so it's going to feel like less latency. But that might be just the easiest way overall. Because don't forget, the way a CRT draws its image, you're not going to get a massive difference between 1080i and 480p. Um, and even if a CRT could theoretically accept 1080p, the difference isn't going to be as staggering as when you're using a 1080p or 4K flat panel because you're not filling up individual pixels. You're just scanning the information horizontally across the screen. So I, what I would say first is look into the exact model HD CRT that you have and see if it's one that can be set into zero latency mode if it's set to 480, uh, 540p. Now, what I'm about to say is specific to Sony HD CRTs only. Um, HD CRTs really require a series of videos all on their own, which I'm probably going to work on hopefully in 2024. So this is some general advice specifically for Eli or anybody with Sony HD CRTs. But research the model check out the service manual. It's boring as shit. I'm not I'm just going to be blunt. You have to sit there and just scroll for like five whole minutes until you get to a setting and all the settings look alike. So you have to be very careful. And then you change the setting and then you could use a time sleuth to measure to see if the latency drops in 540p mode. Um, and if it does, that's, I mean, that's a lot of ifs right there. But essentially, if you have an HD CRT from Sony that can run in zero latency mode in 540p, what I would actually do is run it through a Tink 5X using the version one firmware that has 540p output and convert 480p, or I guess maybe 720p would work, but definitely 480p to 540p. And there you go. You basically have a windowed 480p mode. You're going to have very little latency, uh, if not, you know, whatever the Tink has. So it's basically no latency there. And that would be the best overall way to do it. Now, if you're specifically talking about converting 1080p to 1080i, what if you have a Sony HD CRT that doesn't have a zero latency mode? You're then going to be adding some scalar latency on top of the latency that's already built into the HD CRT. So is it really even worth it at that point? I mean, I, I would think it's better to just run it in 480p, deal with the uh, the CRT's latency, and just go from there. It'll probably still look great. And even if you don't have an HDMI input, you should be able to use like an EDIDS poofer on the HDMI side just to tell the switch to enable 480p mode and then use any kind of like HDMI to component video converter to, to get it into there or if it has an HDMI input, that too, but that would probably be the best move. So I think I probably confused every single person listening except people with Sony HD CRTs who are aware of what I was talking about. So if if anybody wants me to clarify this stuff, please let me know. I, I'll do so in like a five-minute answer next week as well. But this is really a complicated topic, and it's kind of why I tell people when you're using HD CRTs, 
just accept them for what they are and use them as best as they can. They're still amazing choices. And it's still something that I think most people would, most people who use the generation of games that could take advantage of it would want. Not 240p, but anything 480i and above, yeah, I think they would be great. So let me know if I just did more damage than good, but hopefully I was able to sort of point you in the right direction. Next up, Craig M just got their RetroTINK 4K, and they were really interested in trying the film options, specifically the 1080p 96 that I keep mentioning. They fired up their LG C2 and NVIDIA Shield. They set the Shield's resolution to 1080p 24, and after that, they set the TINK 4K to 1080p 100, then set it to frame lock VRR on, which would allow it to output 96 hertz, and then they turned on BFI. They can see the Tink's sync lock say that it's 95.9 hertz, and they played a 1080p 24 per second movie, but they found the flickering pretty much unbearable. So the first thing that I would say is double check the other setting. When I made that original video, Mike had uh, changed, or from the time I made that original video, Mike changed around some of the menu op options. So it might have actually been the opposite than the original was. So change the blur and strobe settings because what you're really looking for is one, two, three off, one, two, three off. So if a 24 frame per second video, frame one would play three times, then there would be no frame. And frame two would play three times, two, 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 then zero, then three, 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 then zero, nothing. Um, so that's what you're trying to accomplish for the 35 millimeter film emulation. I loved it. I was blown away at how good it looked on my projector. I thought it looked, uh, depending on the source, better than my friend's LG CX OLED. Um, if, cause if you used, uh, some sources don't true, don't do true 24 P so it would get all messed up. But, um, I thought that was great as well, but I do, I could visualize what you're seeing and I think that might be it. So, the other thing you could try is, of course, just setting it to, you know, setting your um, shield to 1080p 24, plugging it directly into your TV and trying its BFI, or I guess you could do 4K 24 at that point, and see if that flicker bothers you, because some people are sensitive to that flicker. It's kind of like some people are sensitive to lag, some people are sensitive to certain range of hearing. I learned that the hard way when I was mixing the album a couple years ago. I could hear, at least at the time, a higher range of frequency than your average person, um, which is something you're, you're born with and it goes away anyway, but it could just be that your eyes are very sensitive to that type of flicker and you're never going to like it which is fine. And unfortunately, I can't tell you, we'll just go to a movie theater and see if the same thing happens because nobody shows film projections anymore. So uh, it's going to be something that you're going to have to mess with. Um, but I would kind of just go from there and also mess with any other settings. You mentioned you tried disabling VRR, but the flicker increases when you do that. And it's really strong in any scenes with highlights or white points. So the only other thing I could think is, are you sure that the shield is sending true 1080p 24? And are you sure that your source content really is? And here, here's an example that I don't know if this exists, by the way. I am making this up. I am, Don't quote me on any of this, but it could very well be that what if you're using a Blu-ray that was uh, originally 1080p 24, but the software player on your shield is still treating it with 3.2 pulldown, so you're doing that, but also outputting 24 frames per second. So you're just chopping off a whole bunch of frames. 
basically in order to guarantee that that's not what's happening, set it to the 1080p um, 96 mode, but don't turn on BFI. And if it still is weird, then it's got to be something with your original setup. Most Blu-ray players do have a 1080p 24 mode, so you could try that. But um, that's what I would try. Uh, I, I guess try that second. First, just uh, pl try the different strobe and blur settings and pick the one that has the least amount of flicker. And if that doesn't work, just turn the strobe off altogether, you know, no BFI, and see how that looks. And if it still looks weird, toggle VRR again. And if it still looks weird, it might just be the shield and the software that it's using. So, but please, if you don't mind, follow up because this was one of the most impressive features of the Tank 4K to me. Your own true control over BFI. This is just a ridiculous game changer for all video content. So if you don't mind, please let me know how you make out with this. I really hope it's just something as easy as the menu that I showed in the original video isn't as isn't the exact same as the menu that's currently on the Tink 4K now that it's in production. But I'd like to get to the bottom of this because I think this is a feature that anybody who watches old content with uh, with film grain on it is going to really, really benefit from because I think it'll really smooth it out and make it look better. Next up, Adam Lee just got a RetroTINK 4K, and they're wondering what modes to put their HDMI modded consoles in, such as PS1, N64, Dreamcast. They've heard pass-through mode, but they're not sure if all mods have that option. So for Dreamcast, I would set it to uh, 640 by 480 to output its original resolution. Not 480p because you're going to probably get some black bars. Uh, I would try the 640 by 480 resolution, which for any 480p game is technically pass-through mode. And I don't remember if the any of the DC Digitals have a 480i outputting mode, but if you're playing games that absolutely do not have a patch, there's no trick to force it to 480p, it's 480i only, I would try for pass-through there so you could let the Tink 4K do the deinterlacing. But Almost every game on the Dreamcast can be forced to 480p in some way, so I think that's probably the best bet, 640 by 480 As for PS1 and N64, the original pass-through mode would by far be the best way to do this, because while those HDMI mods are all very good, every one of them is, the Tink 4K is using you know, an incredibly expensive and powerful processor, and that's the one that you're going to want to use to do things like deinterlacing, scaling, you know, all of the filters and stuff like that. So a pass-through mode should be fairly easily doable on all of these via a firmware update. Um, it shouldn't be anything that's super complicated. And developers that haven't done that before should be able to reach out and have other people help out with that. You might need to use something like a super resolution. So instead of 320 by 240, it might be 1920 by 240, which is would help with the pixel clocks and so, uh, probably the HDMI clock, not the pixel clock. I got that wrong, but the same point being. So I would politely ask the creators to offer that as a feature because this is something that everybody in the scene has been talking about for years now. In fact, even when the Tink 5X came out, we were all speculating about potential HDMI scalers in the future, and we've all been talking about pass-through modes for HDMI stuff. I the, the, the one that I've been begging for for years was Brian from Retro USB. I wanted him to do a pass-through mode for that, so you could just simply use an HDMI to component converter or HDMI to VGA with an HD15 to SCART, and you could use it on CRTs. But now it's even more important because you could use the retro USB AVS in original resolution mode. 
Now, if they don't offer that at all, if the devs don't want to do that or, or whatever else, you could use, uh, you could create custom profiles and use HDMI decimation. So basically, like if you send the N64 at 480p, you set the decimation so it essentially downscales to 240p and then scales it up from there. Mark for My Life in Gaming absolutely went into great detail about this in their RetroTank 4K video. I'll leave a link just for reference. So when in doubt, put it into pass-through mode or original resolution mode like the Dreamcast. But uh, if possible, you know, do every kind of pass-through. And then if not, you could use the HDMI decimation and I'll leave that video for, uh, for reference. Next up, Mr. Morrow also has a RetroTank 4K question. They want to know what HDMI equipment I'm using with it. Splitters, uh, matrix switches, regular switches, audio extractors. And to be honest, everything's changed in the past couple of months. When I did that HDMI shootout video, I assumed those were products that would be in stock for a little while. And some of them sold out within a month of that video going up and are not available anymore. So I, I still have one or two of those laying around. I should probably just sell because I need to keep equipment around that it's still available for sale so that I could do videos on it and kind of show people how to get around a lot of this stuff. Unfortunately, though, I've had a hard time finding reliable devices that could work on either end of the Tink 4K. And I'm pretty sure the reason is because most of these equipment are transitioning over to HDMI 2.1 devices. So 4K 120, etc. Whereas the generation that I originally tested capped out at 4K 60. And while, of course, the Tink 4K can only input 1080p 60 and can only output either 1080p 120 or 4K 60, Part of the reason you would want to use this equipment is to route everything through it or it through all of this other equipment. And that's something I still need to dig into. I'm still looking for compatible devices. I'm still looking for affordable devices because the stuff that I tested last year was between, for the, the uh, matrix switches, between 50 and 100 bucks, which is reasonable for what you get. But the ones I'm looking at now are like 200, 400. And I do realize inflation is driving a lot of this up, but I think there needs to be more choices out there. So the very cheesy answer I'm going to give to you is for, for the short term, what I would recommend is getting the cheapest HDMI switch possible and use it on the output side of the Tink 4K. Um, if you want to use anything on the input side, I would actually use older HDMI equipment that does not support 4K at all, which is, works out anyway because the Tink can't input 4K stuff. Um, and uh, luckily, all of that should be incredibly cheap. Uh, so I would start with that now, see if that could tide you over. But what I'm really looking for is like a 10 by 4 HDMI matrix switch that could support up to HDMI 2.1, supports CEC pass-through, supports ARC on one of the ports, and would allow you to route everything through the Tink 4K, direct to your TV, direct to your AVR, whatever. And I haven't found one that fits all of the criteria and is reasonably priced. I'd pay a couple hundred for that. Um, obviously, it would be cheaper if it was like a 4 by 2 but I think a lot of people are going to want more than two outputs. So that's what I'm really looking for. But I promise you that this is something I think about an unhealthy amount, to be honest with you, because this should be something that's easily fixable. But the equipment that's available today, other than leftover 1080p stuff, might not be able to do it right. 
The good news is uh, if you have a lot of stuff that's uh, up to 1080p 60, you could get older matrix switches super cheap. You can get just older basic splitters very cheap and then just keep all of your 1080p 60 stuff in that box, if you will, um, you know, metaphorically speaking, and then route everything that's over that through a different pathway altogether. So I know you were you and everybody else who's been asking really wanted a much easier answer to that by this switch by this splitter you know et cetera but we're kind of at that transitional period between HDMI generations where it's probably going to be springtime before I'm able to make another video that says here's the devices that you should use I really hope I'm wrong I really really hope next week I stumble upon you know the holy grail of HDMI things but I just wanted to be clear about my answer because I didn't want you to think that um, I was failing you all with my HDMI knowledge. I really am trying, but I want to get the best equipment out. So start right now with the cheapest stuff possible. You could use basically anything on the output side and on the input side, stick to 1080p 60 or lower for the HDMI specs, and you should be fine there. And I promise you, I will follow up as soon as there's more info on it. Next up, Oliver Clare completely rebuilt their original Xbox. Everything from a 60mm Noctua fan, a 2TB SSD with a RetroFrog tray and a SATA adapter, a Stellar HD Plus kit with a 128MB memory enhancement, and a custom case with an LCD kit. And they're wondering about a few things, and the number one is temperature. So Oliver said that... Um, it now operates at a minimum of 45C and could reach the high 60s after about 20 minutes. So there's a few questions I have. First and foremost, are you talking about at idle or are you talking about after a game has loaded? I'm pretty sure that a bunch of different Xbox motherboard revisions regularly run at about 60-65C while games are being played, but I'm pretty sure that none of them idle that at that hot just sitting at a dashboard. Now, this is going off of memory, and while I did own an Xbox when it was new and modded it and have been working on them since, I'm by no means an expert in the Xbox hardware modding community. So these are guesses, but these are educated guesses. So I would say if it's idling at 60C, you have a problem. And if it's in-game, you don't. But you're going to want to double check all of that. And also, how are you getting the temperature readings? Is that something that's built into the LED kit? How is the LED kit getting the temperature? Is it software telling it or is it, you know, did you install a thermal probe or, because you know, I, if I'm remembering correctly, some of those like in dashboard, the thermal sensors can be off on the original Xbox. Now, maybe I'm just remembering one dashboard, one revision of one dashboard from 15 years ago, or maybe they're all like that, but it's not, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case, but you definitely want to double check that as well. So I just would confirm those things. Are you talking 60C in game or 60C at, uh, at idle? And how are you getting the temperature? And is there any other way you could test? Also, if uh, it could removing the LED kit substantially impact the temperature? And what about replacing the new custom case? So I would have to run tests myself, but what I can tell you is airflow and especially how a case is made to direct that air is a major factor. Now, I took a look at the case that you had uh, sent a link to, and it seemed totally fine, but 
there are definitely specific ways that air is supposed to flow in something like that. Um, and in fact, Intel, uh, before they figured out how to lower the temperature on their processors, tried coming out with a completely different PC case style. I want to, BGA? No, that was the ball grid away. I, I forgot, BTX, maybe that was it? I don't know. We're talking 20 years ago now. But the, the specific reason was because they wanted to have a clear path of airflow from the front to back and position all of the hottest components in front of it. And if you had modified some of those cases, the temperatures would be all over the place. And consoles are the same way because you don't have to worry about people mixing and matching their components like a general PC build. They're meant to direct the airflow in one direction. So there could be issues with that case, but it doesn't look like it just glancing at the pictures, but it's certainly plausible. Yeah, uh, if that's the case, I mean, you could certainly replace it with the new retro gamer store cases that are coming out because those are just meant to emulate the originals. But I would still check on everything else just in case, because I also know a ton of people that have LCD kits for it, and none of them have complained to me that that was what caused any temperature issues. So yeah, I just confirm if it's an idle or running and maybe just do some more checks. And I'll also reach out to some people in the Xbox scene and see if they could have any uh, have anything else to add. But, you know, let's let's follow up on this because I want to make sure you don't burn out that nicely pimped out Xbox. Well, that's it for this week. Hopefully I didn't record these too early. Uh, and if I did miss a question, it's almost certainly because the question came in after I was done recording, but before I had time to upload these to all the services. I really tried to never miss a question, but if I do, please either just re-ask it next week or DM me if it's something that's important and time sensitive. And also, as always, anybody who supports on any platform is welcome to participate in these. This is a thank you to everybody who supports. I just ask that you ask your question in the latest Q&A post because the way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a newer question on an older post. Plus, I really like just scrolling through in real time like you always see me do because it kind of feels more like we're hanging out together somewhere rather than a formal question and answer process or some crap like that. So, uh, And once again, uh, most people support on Patreon. I have no preference, but that's why you very often only see questions on Patreon. It's not that I ignore the other services. It's just that where most people usually are. So any service at all, thank you so much. And you're all welcome to participate in these. And even just thanks to everybody who listens to them and supports in any way, even just spreading the word. You're all awesome. I really appreciate you. And I will see you all next week.